Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Believe it or not, there is news going on outside of Ireland and coronavirus. And joining me now to fill us in on what's going on in the globe is Jonathan DeBurka Butler. Hello, Jonathan. Sure, how, how are you? Are you well? I'm very good. And I, I mention coronavirus because, God, no matter where you go, I even went for a salts to sea swim last night. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a what a cliche. But even getting changed in the little kind of outdoor area, the amount of discussions going on about coronavirus, it seems to be all anybody's talking about. So you have good news about a, a virus or condition of another kind coming to an end. Yes, this is uh, Ebola, which... Um I don't know if we covered it back in February when the outbreak actually happened. I think I steered away from it on purpose. Uh, but there was an outbreak in Guinea, OK, uh, in West Africa. And this is the second Ebola outbreak um, that this country has gone through since the huge outbreak that happened between 2014 and 2016. I don't know if you remember it. I mean, people were pretty scared of it because it, it, it went into three different countries. It was Guinea, Liberia, Sierra Leone. I think over 11,000 people died. And you might remember there was a nurse from Scotland who I think contracted it and, and brought it into the UK, I, I think, or else she was she was taken back to the UK. And so there was widespread fear over it. And um, this outbreak started, as I said, in February, but it was isolated really quickly. So there was 16 confirmed cases only, seven, what they're saying, probable infections. Now, how they were able to prove otherwise, I'm not 100% sure. But out of those, there was 12 fatalities. Um, but they've managed to isolate it because of the experience that they had back in 2014, 2016 and the other outbreaks since. They were able to uh, get rid of it effectively and, and it has been declared gone at this stage now, they're very happy to say. So that's the World Health Organization who on Saturday officially declared that the uh, the end of Ebola in this part of the world. Did vaccination play a part in this? Well, there was a vaccination programme that had been rolled out before, so I'm sure it did affect it. Um, obviously, the vaccinations hadn't got it, got, got into the areas with the, where this outbreak occurred. I don't think there was anything in terms of the vaccination being flawed or it breaking through, because I seem to remember that when they did come up with the vaccination, because when that first wave that happened after the major wave, if you know what I mean, there, it was around that time that the vaccinations were coming through, and I think they were they were um, they were put out and administered fairly quickly. So um, thankfully, uh, it's come to an end. But no doubt there might be other cases of it as as we go further on. I often wonder if the, if the if the the unstoppable bleeding and the severe fever that go along with Ebola had happened with the coronavirus, would we have taken action more quickly? I don't yeah. know. I think part of part of why we didn't move um, on the on the pandemic was because it was so sort of subtle in many ways. Yes, yeah, the asymptomatic you know? was yeah. what made it really difficult yeah. sometimes to, well, to know how to, to, to behave. But ultimately, we've completely changed our behaviours. And here's hoping you'll be here to tell us about that being eradicated yes, sooner yeah, rather than absolutely. later also. <laughs> on to Liberia there, uh, though, where a rebel leader there has been convicted. Yes, yeah, so this is uh, goes, goes back to the time of the Liberian civil wars. There was two of them. And the, the first one happened between 1989 and 1986. So most people remember at the end of that particular world, Charles Taylor took over and he ruled Liberia 
um, for a number of years until the Second Liberian War. Um, and he was uh, uh, an absolute, um, uh, well, he was an animal, really, to be honest with you. Hence, he's in prison now in the United Kingdom, of all places, serving 50 years. But one of his opponents, a man by the name of uh, Aliou Kossia, uh, he was a commander uh, of, of a group called the United Liberation Movement of Liberia for Democracy, ULIMA for short, all right? And he was up against Charles Taylor. And when Taylor came to power, uh, Cossia moved to Switzerland. He moved there in 1999, I think, or, or towards the end of the 1990s anyway, and sort of lived there uh, for a long time without being touched. And he was arrested in about 2014. All right. Now, this was after a case was brought by a Swiss NGO called Civitas Maxima. OK, now, what's important about this is that it happened. The case actually took place in Switzerland, even though the crimes were committed in Liberia, which is obviously slightly, slightly weird. And this was allowed to happen because Swiss law changed in 2011 to allow crimes that were committed elsewhere to be tried in Switzerland. Right. So so crimes against humanity. And so that's exactly what happened. Now, it took a long time for the case to actually come to trial, but he has been um, sentenced to 20. He's been convicted and he's been sentenced to 20 years in prison. And what crimes do do we want to know? Uh, we don't really. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, it was, you know, um, uh, forcing child soldiers to, to take part in war. There was rape. There was charges of cannibalism, uh, mass murder, all sorts of different things. Uh, the, the, the interesting thing about it, and I had to do a double take on this, was his current age is 46 Right. And that means that when he was in the midst of committing these crimes, so between 93 and 95, he was a very young man. He was 18 and, you know, between the age of 18, 19, 20 at that stage himself. And, you know, part of his defence, and we've heard this before, was that he was a child himself when he was drafted into that organisation. But it it seems that the court didn't uh, believe that that was enough to you know, waive what he had done and the crimes that he committed. So he will go to prison for um, 20 years. And this conviction will, of course, set precedence for future convictions. That's exactly the thing. And and this is why, you know, NGOs like Human Rights Watch and various other organisations are saying, look, this is great. I mean, the law came in in 2011. It took you until it took you 10 years to actually convict someone using this law. But it does set a precedent for Switzerland and they can crack on and maybe do the same with other people. And that, I, I would imagine that these people would have to be living or, or you know, taking refuge or hiding out in Switzerland uh, as it is in order for it to happen. But it, it would mean that it would take some pressure off the International Criminal Court in The Hague as well. Um, there was a recent conviction there of... Um, of another um, former child soldier from Uganda, actually. Um, and, and he was sentenced to, to about 20 or 25 years. So it would take a bit of pressure off them and it would also probably encourage other countries, and there are other countries who do this, to take international war criminals to court. Uh, it seems to be something that's happening a lot more uh, in recent years. And you'd hope it would set other precedents over protection of vulnerable children. With the refugee crisis across the world, there are so many vulnerable children yeah. who are yeah. left without parents, without care, who get swept up into this sort of world. Yeah, absolutely. Let's look at Malawi then. Uh, the government are to punish diplomats expelled for South Africa. This was some dodgy dealings with alcohol. 
It was. Um, Malawi, uh, there's eight diplomats altogether, right? So there's six of us, six of them, who six of us, I'm implicating myself there, six <laughs> six of them who worked for the High Commission in Pretoria and two who came from the consulate in, in Johannesburg. And they've been expelled um, and it's been taken very seriously. I mean, there was a, st- a statement on TV put out by President uh, Lazarus Chikwera basically saying that there was this would not affect the relationship between Malawi and South Africa, that everything would be okay. They were very embarrassed about it and very sorry. But yeah, these guys were importing um, uh, alcohol illegally from Malawi into South Africa and they were selling it on to bars and restaurants in South Africa without paying the duty on it. So they were obviously using their position to to benefit their own pocket or line their own pocket. So um, they've been sent home and they will be dealt with accordingly. They've quite a different view of alcohol in, in South Africa. I didn't really realise it. I have a friend living there mm. and during our lockdown we were having one of these, you know, FaceTime discussions as, as people do about how they were coping with life. And there's prohibition in South Africa during lockdown. You can drink whatever alcohol you had in your home when the axe fell, but you can't purchase it anywhere at all. You couldn't go out to get it. No. I didn't know that. That's that's terrible. That's like a police state. <laughs> but it seems this was more about the tax evasion really yeah, than this the alcohol was more itself. To do, yeah, this is more to do with the, the, the fact that they were abusing their position to make money for themselves and they weren't happy with it. It's interesting because Malawi and uh, South Africa have, have a long and very good uh, diplomatic relationship, even going back to the, the apartheid times. Um, so this is not going to upset that particular uh, situation. And with diplomats, there are certain rules that they live outside of. They yeah. do get... Uh, a, a, a lot of perks, shall they we do. say. So when you step outside of those lines or colour outside of those lines, it seems you're going to get wrapped on the knuckles. Uh, now, on to Tunisia, people out on the streets after more police beatings and deaths. This started with a video that went viral. Yeah, so the the Arab Spring obviously happened, uh, it's 10 years ago now, in Tunisia, right? And Tunisia has done okay in certain aspects in that it's returned to well it's, it's gone to democracy and it's had it's held relatively free and fair elections since um, but there are areas of life that have not been reformed and one of those is the uh, police and they're fairly uh, rough to be honest with you or at least they're fairly rough in certain areas usually poorer areas and poorer suburbs of the bigger towns right so this, are they armed uh, as far as i know they are yeah absolutely um this particular uh, incident started after uh, a 32-year-old was wound up dead in a police cell, right? Now, there's the reason I'm saying that is because there's two sides of the story. The police basically say they arrested him because he was in possession of marijuana, which he subsequently got rid of by ingesting and died from that. His family say that it's quite clear that he was just taken into the prison and he was beaten to death, right? So it seems that the... Um, his friends and his family and demonstrators in the the working class district that he came from, a place called Sidi Hassin, uh, took the side of the the family and believed their story. They took to the streets against the police and it then spread out across the city and to other parts of the country indeed. But most of it is focused on the city. And on the second day of the protests, uh, a younger, I think a 16-year-old boy was arrested by police and he was recorded then they stripped him and they beat him. And that, of course, added fuel to the fire, right? So everybody has got involved now. So you have civil rights organisations, you have 
the president who visited that particular suburb and basically said he was shocked and appalled by this one-off incident. The interior ministry who looks after the police, um, he's basically trying to play it down, saying that this is not systemic. Of course, the protesters say that it absolutely is systemic. Uh, He says this is a one-off incident. It will be investigated and the police in question, if they are found to be guilty will uh, be dealt with. But nobody or none of the protesters or very few of the protesters at least um, believe that anything will happen to these police. Well, sometimes when people have camera phones, it's harder to argue a case against what is systemic and what isn't. However, let's move on to France, where it was a clash on the streets of a different kind. Uh, Some ravers began to gather. Yes, ravers in the town, in a town in Brittany called Redon. Uh, It happened on Friday night and this was a couple of days before France was due to lift uh, the overnight, what they call the overnight virus curfew, all right? Um, So I think that's been lifted now. It's very strict in France, hasn't it? it is. I I, I believe it is quite strict, all right. And, uh, you know, the the, the ravers weren't too happy about that. Uh, Why they couldn't wait two nights, I don't don't know, to be honest with you. But there you go, that's... (laughs) what ravers do. Um, And there was 1,500 of them, uh, according to police. Uh, They they tried to get permission to hold this rave, right? But the local authorities banned it. So they knew exactly what they were doing. The police came along to try and break it up. It took them a total of seven hours to disperse the crowd. And there was riots and all sorts of things um, uh, involved. And during that, a 22-year-old lost his hand. Now, the police are basically saying that he picked up some explosive device or something explosive and that blew off the the, the poor lad's hand. Um, Five police were injured during that particular party, and so there's various different investigations going on to find out what happened to the man's hand, how the police were injured, and who organised the event. Um, But there are a lot of people in France who are not particularly happy, and it's it's across Europe as well. In Germany, um, there was about 4,000 people at at another party in Hamburg, which had to be broken up by police as well. Um, so there's it's not just South William Street I suppose I know and I did think about that when reading this story and the kind of wildness that's in the air as, as people re-emerge and, and socialise and unless you really contain it and organise it it can just dispel into yeah, chaos I absolutely. mean we've seen fireworks at guards here and all of that. Um, and in Peru, the election is coming to a close, but still too close to call. Yeah, it's it's been on hold for, for a while because they the results are so close. So the, the two very interesting characters involved here. The first is, is sort of the right-leaning candidate, a woman by the name of Keiko Fujimori. Now, this is her third attempt at this, and she's a member of what is one of the most sort of compelling dynasties in, in world politics, right? Her... Her um, father, a man by the name of Alberto Fujimori, is in prison, right, uh, for basically human rights abuses. Um, his supporters see him as a bit of a hero because he got rid of the Shining Path, the sort of the, the, the fairly vicious left-wing organisation um, that were, were very um, uh, prevalent in the 1990s and early 2000s in, in Peru. Um, he finally get rid of, got rid of them, so he'd have his supporters, but as I said, he's in prison. And Keiko Fujimori herself is not far away from controversy. There are several people who, if she is not elected, would like to see her get thrown in prison for various different types of corruption. And, and if like. she is elected... Uh, see, that's the thing. If she is elected, she'll have immunity from prosecution. And she won't, obviously, go into prison, or at least she'll have time to think about how she will, you know, defend herself as or change the law uh, as time moves on. So she has a, a very good motive for running uh, for president. That's why she's done it a couple of times. Um 
but she is losing at the moment. As it stands, there is 44,000 votes between them. All right. So it looks like this left-leaning candidate, Pedro Castillo, uh, is ahead. But there are various different uh, um, investigations that have been launched about voter fraud that Keiko Fujimori is talking about. Um, And even though the body that... Uh, is in charge of counting the votes has said we've done our we've done our job the body that's in charge of declaring a winner has said that they're not finished doing their job yet wow it's quite the <laughs> so it's quite it's quite the drama um, and puts a whole different I suppose, spin on the idea of a smear campaign. Nobody <laughs> even had to go digging for any of that. Absolutely, no. Well, thank you on that for that little trip around the world. That's Jonathan de Burke Butler. And thank you for joining me in studio. Always Perfect. lovely to have a human in studio these days. Uh, we'll take another break. But coming up next, how antidepressants in the water affect fish. Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.